0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. In case any of you are wondering whether or not what we just sang can apply to you, know that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you. (laughs) Those are good words. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really thankful to be here with you. If you have a Bible, open it to Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book of the Old Testament, right before Matthew. We've been working our way through this. These famous last words of God to his people 400 years before Christ arrives on the scene in the Gospels. And we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, which I'll read in just a moment. It's hard to be indifferent about the topic of money and giving. It brings up emotions for for all of us, I think, many of us. Those emotions may be disgust with churches that have abused money or people that have abused money, annoyance maybe from organizations, institutions, leaders, churches that always seem to be asking for money. Maybe it brings up shame because we feel like we're not doing what God has called us to do, guilt. Maybe it brings up pride. Maybe if some of you have been waiting for this section in Malachi because you know that we were getting to it, and you're saying, "Aha! finally. We're going to get to that part where I know that I'm excelling and everybody else needs to hear what I've been doing so faithfully all these years. Maybe you've had a stereotype of churches that only talk about money and that's one of the reasons why maybe you haven't been in a church and today somebody invited you to come to Cross Point for the first time and behold <laughs> the sermon is about money and giving well you can thank the holy spirit for his providence in your life this is just the natural succession of what's next in this book that we are working through my point is is that money and giving is, is a, it's a deep topic. And so we're going to look at God's Word and what He has to say to His people about, about giving and possessions. Let me read Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, and then I'll pray. And let me say just how thankful I am for the Copleys, for their life and ministry, and to see them go. I can remember the first time I met Logan it was right over there in that section of seats and then to see them meet each other and fall in love and be called into ministry is a great joy for this church what a what a fruit of the gospel of the life of the congregation of Cross Point praise God for you guys and praise God for the faithful life of Stephen Hall when we started this church <laughs> 14 years ago Stephen was a A charter member, one of the, I don't know, original Dirty Dozen or so of us, and uh, has just been a faithful dear brother for many years. What a privilege to be part of a local church. Amen. Let me read this text. Malachi 3, starting in verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change, Therefore, you, O oh children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this passage, this text, these words that you spoke through Malachi to your people thousands of years ago. Help us to understand them. Help us to hear your heart in these words for us Help us to apply it to our lives. May we not be merely hearers of the word, but may we be doers of the word as well. May we be transformed in the image of Christ as we leave this building and as we've prayed already for any of our friends that are here that do not know about Jesus. I pray that they would see that you would give them the eyes to see that ultimately today is not about possessions, but it's about our hearts and about your lordship and what you have done to reconcile people to yourself. So Lord, I pray that you might bring to life anybody that is dead in their sins and that you might encourage those that are alive in Christ to be more like him. And I pray it all for your glory and our good and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I think the point of this passage is really quite straightforward. And so here's my plan. I want us to work through these six verses very quickly. And then I want us to think about how this issue applies to us, the idea of giving and possessions and what God is saying to his people in the Old Testament, how it applies to us and to how it applies to us and to help us do that. I'm going to ask us and hopefully answer three questions in the second half of the sermon. So I think as we look at verses 6 through 12, we can think of this in really two parts. First there's a problem, and then secondly there's a solution. The problem is clear, is that Israel was robbing God. They were hoarding God, hoarding from God their possessions. He had given them everything that they owned. He had made them into a nation. He had blessed them. And now they were hoarding their possessions. They were not giving back to God as he had commanded them to do in his Old Testament law that he gave through Moses that we read about primarily in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And they were, they were really being stingy with God. And this is ironic because everything that they had, in fact, this applies to us clearly as well, everything that they had, everything that we have belongs to God. He gave them what he gave them. He made them into a nation not so that his goodness and that their possessions and that their crops and that their produce and that their overflow of all that he had given them would terminate or dead end on them. But he had called Israel to be a conduit of his blessing so that through Israel, through their life, they would be a blessing to all the other nations of the earth. In fact, that's God's original purpose for even beginning, instituting, creating the nation of Israel. We read about it in Genesis chapter 12. He says to Abram, who becomes Abraham, who becomes the father of Israel, the nation, he says, I am going to make a nation through you. I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing to the nations. In other words, he's bringing to himself a people. And we read through the Bible that we know that ultimately this people are through whom the Messiah comes. That then he brings blessing to the world. And so the purpose for God's blessing was not that it would dead end on his people, but that they would be open-handed, that they would be a conduit of his blessing. And they misunderstood this. And they were hoarding it for themselves. They they misunderstood ultimately joy. They thought that they could find joy in stuff rather than in God and being used by God. And ultimately they didn't trust God, they didn't trust his goodness. And they were complaining about God. And they were thinking that God was being stingy with them. In fact, they were calling God evil and accusing Him of not caring about them, not being a God of justice. And so they were robbing God. And we see clearly that as a result of that, God is cursing them. How is He cursing them? He is causing famine to hit Israel. He's causing their crops to fail. And he's sending locusts and other insects to be the devourer. That's what he's talking about there. He's causing insects to eat their crops. And this is just a reminder. We don't think of this in these terms very often in our day. But God is in complete control of everything. He's in control of the crops. He's in control of the weather weather patterns. And God is withholding rain from their crops so that their crops would fail. And not only that, he's sending insects to come and eat what little crops that they have. So Israel was robbing God and God was cursing them. That's clear. That's the problem. What's the solution? Well, God says to them, he says, trust me, give. Look at, look at uh, verse, verse 10. He says, As a result of this, I've cursed you. Now bring the full tithe. Stop hoarding what I've given to you. Obey my law. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And God even says this. He doesn't say this often in the scriptures. But he's saying, put me to the test in verse 10, says the Lord of hosts and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. I think that's a clear reference to rain. See if I I will not bring rain and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And so the solution that God gives them is to give, to obey what he's commanded them to do in the law that he gave to Moses years before, to tithe. Now, to understand this passage, we need to understand what the Bible means when it uses this word tithe. What was a tithe in the Old Testament. This word tithe means a tenth. And this was a command in God's law that he gave to Moses to give to the people that they were to give a tenth of their produce or their income of their blessing back to God. Of course, he gave all of it to them, but they were to give the first fruits, the first tenth of their crops and their livestock to God. Now, we think of this in the sense of 10% because that's what the word tithe means. But when we read the Old Testament and when we piece together all of the different tithes that God's people were commanded to give in the Old Testament, it actually adds up to probably somewhere around 25 to 30% of of their income, of their produce, of their overflow that they were to give to God. There were three specific tithes that they were commanded to give in the law, the first tithe that they were to give was to the Levites, the, the tribe, the priesthood, who were not allocated any land according to the division of land. And so the priests depended on the giving of the people their tithe, their tenth, a yearly tithe for the, the maintenance of the priesthood and their role. We read about that in Leviticus 27 and Numbers 18 and Nehemiah 10. So there's the, the first tithe yearly was to be given to the priests, the Levites. Secondly, there was a second tithe, so we're at 20% right now, that was to support yearly religious festivals, things that Israel was supposed to do as corporate worship to God, their festivals and their feasts, and really the, 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 the putting on of really church services in a way. And we read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 14, where they were to give an additional tithe, another 10%, to support these yearly religious festivals. And then there was a, a third tithe, a third tenth, It wasn't to be given every year, but was to be given every third year for the needy amongst the people of God, the fatherless, the widows, and the sojourners. So if you add up just every third year giving a tenth, and then the other two tenths for religious festivals, the ceremonies, the sacrificial system, really the religious life, and then also for the, for the, for the maintenance, the, the, the sustenance of the priest, you're looking at somewhere between 25 and 30% that God in his Old Testament law commanded Israel to give. And they were hoarding this. And God says, test me, test me, give, be faithful. Trust me is what he's saying. And if you do, I will promise to bless you. He says in verse 10, we just read it, I will open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need. So I'm gonna bring rain. And then verse 11 says, I'm gonna rebuke the devourer for you. So I grew up in in Southern California where there was just crops everywhere. And they would fly these planes and they would, they would fly like a, a pesticide plane that would fly low and just, just release pesticide over the crops. And so this image I have is that when he says, I will rebuke the devourer, sometimes we over-spiritualize that. But I think this means that God, however he will do it, when they prove God's faithfulness by obeying him and giving, he will bring rain and he will spray like a divine pesticide over their crops. And he'll kill all the bugs so that they will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field and shall not fail to bear, says the Lord. And then look what he says. He promises to bless them, not so that it would terminate on them. But look at verse 12. He says, then, back to his original purpose for even creating Israel as a nation. He says, then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So I'm going I'm to do this for you, but not primarily for you. Behind my blessing for you and your obedience, behind that is the glory of God amongst the people of God for the sake of the nations. That's behind God's promise to bless Israel. And he says, all the nations will, will call you blessed and you will be a land of delight. I think of this promise in Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12. Psalm 84, verses 11 and 12. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. And so God promises to bless his people so that... They will enjoy him, they will be a land of delight, and all the nations will call God blessed. So that's it. That's what this text is, is saying. That may be a record for me of working through a text. <laughs> Catch your breath for just a second. So what is, one, what is an enduring principle that I think we can take away from from Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, before we, we ask ourselves how this applies to us. Here's, here's just a few sentences that I think encapsulate what Malachi 3, verses 6 through 12 is saying to us. Everything belongs to God. Everything. When we give sacrificially, we show that God rules our hearts, not our possessions. God then blesses our obedience and uses it to bless others with the gospel. The gospel, the display of His goodness to the, to the nations. Everything we have belongs to God. When we give sacrificially, as God has commanded His people to do, we show, we put on display, we fulfill our purpose for existence. We display, we show that God rules our hearts, not our possessions. And God then blesses our obedience and uses it to bless others with the gospel. I think that's the point of what he's teaching his people and us in Malachi 3, 6 through 12. Well, then how does this apply to us? What are we to make of this this scene here in Malachi 3, 6 through 12? What, What does this mean for us as believers in 2019? So three questions that I want us to think about for the rest of our time together that I hope will be very practical and answer questions that you may have. First, question number one. Does God promise to bless us if we give? Is there a kind of inherent promise in the act of giving? That God promises to give His people if they obey Him by giving a portion of their income to Him? I think the answer to that question is yes, but in a sense, with some qualifications. We need to understand what the whole Bible says about giving and especially about what God's blessing is. The Old Testament, the first thing that we need to understand is that the Old Testament is a shadow that points to the substance which is Christ. I think we see that clearly in Colossians chapter 2, for example. It says that all of these elementary principles, he's speaking of the Old Testament law. And I think even the story of God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament is a kind of shadow that's pointing to the reality of Christ. And so we see here in our text that God is beckoning Israel to return to him, to be obedient to him, and he will give them the blessing of rain. And we, we run in the New Testament to the straight, we see a picture. How, what is that pointing to? I think that's pointing directly to Christ. When we see this picture of God saying, obey me and I will bless you in the Old Testament, we can then take that scene in the Old Testament and we can apply it through the lens of the gospel. So in the Old Testament of Malachi, God says, return to me and I will bring you rain." And then in the New Testament, what does Jesus say? Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So the physical picture of rain in the Old Testament is realized as the rest, the true blessing that Christ gives in the new. So we see that the blessing that God gives in the new In response to our obedience, yes, he does bless, but we need to understand a full biblical view of God's blessing. In the New Testament, blessing, God's blessing, is always, the emphasis is always on the spiritual rather than the material. Let me say that again. In the New Testament, the blessing of God, the emphasis is on the spiritual rather than the material. Let me read to you a a list of a few verses that I think will illustrate this point to us. Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Verse 13 is a well-known verse that we see all the time, but we need to understand this verse in context. Philippians 4, Paul is writing while in prison for preaching the gospel. He says, verse 11, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul is saying that the blessing, the the contentment that comes with serving and obeying God is, is, is not necessarily being freed from prison or not necessarily some financial blessing, but it is the spiritual rest that comes from being content in Christ. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 12. These are such important words on this topic. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of the world. You realize that we were born naked, and we will die naked. I mean, you may be in a suit or a dress, you may be in a very fancy coffin. But you ain't taking it with you. We, were, we brought nothing into the world and we, take, we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through these This craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, verse 11, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Do you see Paul's admonition to Timothy? Look, look at eternity. Look at, look at contentment of godliness that it brings. Not, not some spiritual or not some physical wealth. But he's not condemning wealth either. Just a few verses later in verse 17, again, of 1 Timothy 6. Listen to what Paul tells this young pastor, Timothy, to say to the wealthy in the church that he's pastoring in Ephesus. Verse 17 of 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, So do you see the emphasis of the blessing of God? Even to the rich, he's saying, oh, praise God. In God's providence, you were born that way or you earned that or God gave you some ability to earn lots of money. God will certainly use that, but don't set your hope on those things. Don't cause, let it cause pride in you, but do good, be generous, share and store up for yourself treasures in heaven. In fact, that's what Jesus says in Matthew Chapter 6, verses 19 through 21, Matthew 6, verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So do you see, I mean, these are just a, a portion of the scriptures that we could read. Is that blessing in the New Testament is spiritualized. It's not materialized. That's the emphasis of the Christian life in the New Testament. Let's just pause here and realize that we live in the most materialistic culture in the history of civilization. Do we not? And everything in our culture pushes us to more, more. I mean, we started playing playing Christmas music on sunny whatever 101 or whatever, I, I don't listen to the radio very much. We started playing Christmas music in July. And it's not because of some sentimental reason, it's because they want to start programming your consumer radar in you so that they might, you might buy, right, more, 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 more stuff. More more things, better homes, bigger homes, cars, bigger, more this, more clothes, more, 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 more. And the trajectory, the the, the cry, the shout, the the siren song of this world is more, bigger, better, newer. Whereas the trajectory and the song of the New Testament is eternity, spiritual contentment, rather than material gain. So, well, and let me just say again, the New Testament also, again, does not say that riches and possessions are bad. It says, don't put your heart in those things. So will God bless us if we give? Back to our original original question. I think the answer is yes, if our giving is from a sincere heart of trust in God's goodness. But this blessing will not necessarily be material or financial, but rather the fruit of godliness and contentment, which is great gain. And so God will give each of us a portion. He will assign to us in his providence a portion of possessions or blessing or or possessions in this earth. And he is giving it to us so that we might use it to give, to be generous with whatever we have to put on display the preference of his lordship rather than the lordship of these things in our lives. And yes, God blesses us in that way. Which then brings us to the second question. Are New Testament Christians obligated to tithe? Are New Testament Christians obligated to tithe? Remember what we said about the tithe. It's part of the Old Testament law. It's a specific percentage of giving that God commanded his people to give in obedience to the Mosaic law. And if we are to be consistent, biblical, gospel-centered, wise Bible readers, the clear answer to that question is no. I said it. Now, those of you that were wondering what I would say on that, you came to church and you have The first time you're here, we're talking about giving, and the pastor just said that you are not obligated to tithe. That's right, I said it. You're not. Not in the sense of being obligated to fulfill the law. Jesus, the Bible, is very clear. We just spent two years going to the book of Romans And I don't want to undermine everything that we said as we learned through Romans. We want to be consistent that Jesus has fulfilled and satisfied the requirements of not just most of the law, but all of the law for us. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. What he means there is that Jesus' perfect obedience in our place for our disobedience and the, the, the wrath of God that we, that we incurred through our disobedience from hoarding our stuff and all of the other sins that we've committed, Jesus offers his perfect obedience as a man and he dies on the cross. And if we're in Christ His death, we are in Him. He dies for us. That's what Paul means. You have died with Christ to the law. The punishment for our law breaking was absorbed by Christ, His body on the cross, so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So, what has Jesus done? He died to satisfy God's wrath. He died to satisfy God's justice for our disobedience. And now he reclaims us. The, the hold that the law had on us for our disobedience, Jesus gives his obedience to satisfy our disobedience and the wrath that was bearing down on us. And he buys us with a price. And now we're his. And then in verse 6, just two verses later, he says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. Jesus released us from the obligations of the law because he, he lived, he satisfied the law through his obedience. Friends, don't miss this. I know this is a sermon about giving, but this is the gospel. Take this on any issue in the Christian life. You, God is holy and we are not. And we are separated from God because of our sin, as Springer read earlier from Ephesians 2. And our sin brings spiritual death and God's judgment. And Jesus bears the wrath and judgment of God in our stead, makes us alive when he saves a person, causes him to go from spiritual death life, gives them new life, gives them his righteousness, gives them his obedience, and makes them right, justified, reconciled to God, and now they, he is their master. Where the law was their master, now Jesus is their master. And if Jesus is your master, no one else, no other thing has a hold on you. And he says, you have died, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So now you have a new master. It's Jesus, and he has a new law, a new way of the Spirit that he writes on your heart. It's not on a tablet anymore. It's on the heart that he's given you This now was stone and now is flesh. And Paul summarizes this in Romans 8, verse 3 and 4. He says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, verse 4 is so powerful. Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. So now, there's nothing in the Old... Listen to this. There's nothing in the Old Testament that we must do in order to be reconciled to God. Because, first of all, we read in the Old Testament that nobody can do it all rightly. Everybody that's tried to do what the law commands have failed." But Jesus comes and he obeys the law perfectly for us and he's satisfied. He has extinguished sin's reign over us and the wrath of God that came and now he has, he has fulfilled all the requirements of the law for us. So there's nothing that the Old Testament law calls the people of God to do that we can do that, will, that we are now obligated to do. Jesus has fulfilled it for us. But this doesn't mean now that we can go do whatever we want to do. (laughs) Jesus fulfilled the law for our justification, our right standing, our reconciliation to a holy God. And he fills us with his spirit and gives us a new heart with new desires that now must obey The new law of the spirit that he writes on our hearts. And this new law of the spirit, by the way, agrees with all of the principles of the Old Testament law. Because the spirit that now lives in us is the same one that wrote the Old Testament law. So it's not like there's competing forces. Like all of a sudden somebody new's moved into our heart. Who are the old guys? No, it's God. God wrote the Old Testament and he gave it as a principle to point us to Christ, to show us our futility, to give us a picture of our holiness. And then he writes a new law when he causes us to be born again. He gives us a new heart and stamped on this new heart, not a tablet of stone, but stamped on this new heart is a heart that desires to obey God and to follow him. And now the, Old, the New Testament is full, and we're gonna read it in just this moment, full of admonitions about how we should give cheerfully, sacrificially to God. Not in some sort of religious observance to the Old Testament exterior of the law, but now in obedience to the law of the Spirit of God that has made our hearts new to obey Him and glorify Him. So you see the shadow I want you to see this. More than just knowing some principles about giving, which is important, I want you to see how the Bible fits together. The Old Testament is this shadow that God is calling the people to Himself, and they're sinful and they're holy, and He's giving them the law as an expression of His holiness and as a light to shine on their sinfulness. And the purpose of the Old Testament law was not that God was hoping that Israel could obey it and somehow this will fix the problem. God knew that the law could never save. But the law in that point of redemptive history is given to display God's holiness, to display our sinfulness, and to put on display how we might be made right with God. To point us outside of ourselves to the one Jesus, who would obey it for us and give us His righteousness and give us a new heart, so that we might now obey the law of God, the Spirit of God that's written on our hearts, so that we might fulfill the purposes of God in the Old Testament to His people, to be a people that live in obedience to Him, so that He would bless us in our lives, so that we would be a delight, and all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through the lives of God's people. Do you see how they fit together? Do you see how it's not incongruent? Do you see how the Old Testament is a shadow that's pointing to the substance of the gospel in the new? So what does God then expect of us now regarding giving? What does God expect of us now regarding giving? Because I just said that Christians are not obligated to to fulfill the law of the tithe in the Old Testament, but do not misinterpret that. That does not mean that the Bible does not command us to give. It does in the New Testament. So what does God expect of us regarding giving? Four thoughts, and we'll conclude on this. Four trajectories for the New Testament Christian. That's us. We live in this new covenant, this this gospel era. What does God expect of us regarding giving. One, we should give sacrificially. We should give sacrificially. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, and he's trying to commend and encourage the Corinthian church to give by using the example of the generosity of these other people, the Macedonians, the churches in Macedonia. He says, we want you to know, brothers, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So just to summarize what's going on here, Paul is trying to motivate the Corinthian church that he's writing to by using the example of the churches in Macedonia who even though they were suffering affliction and who themselves were poor were giving generous, they were giving sacrificially to the work of the Lord. And here's a kind of strange principle that I actually think we do see throughout just the history of the church. And I think we we even see it in our day. Oftentimes, people that have less actually give more percentage-wise of their income than people that are actually quite wealthy. Because in God's providence, those that have less have learned how to be content with less and their possessions don't have a grip on their hearts. And if if that's a word for you, dear friend, let, let that be a word from the Holy Spirit that do not let possessions grip your heart. And these poor Macedonians were giving sacrificially even though they were under affliction, and even though they were in, and the words Paul uses were extreme poverty. So we're to give sacrificially. Does this mean that we should give 10%? Well, maybe, but not in fulfillment of some Old Testament law. That may be a good place where the Holy Spirit leads you as you've reasoned in your heart to, to begin. But I want us to realize the potential danger the sort of inherent legalism. If we assign a specific percentage of our income that we should give, we will very easily maybe settle into that, and we'll settle into a percentage that maybe not be very sacrificial. And so it kind of it's a kind of ditch. It's like it's a road where we have two ditches that we can fall into. Some people might, if they were to give ten percent. that would would be very difficult for them to to attain because they don't have much. And so if they're thinking, oh, I've got to give 10%, then that will hang over their head as a kind of law that just beats them down. And maybe what's best for that person is is to give less, to give what they can, but maybe to get out of debt and not be bound by some legalism, not to think that God is not pleased with them because they just don't have enough. I mean, you need to pay your bills and you need to feed your children more than you need to sort of try and come up with some sort of get out of jail, free God spiritually to give and give and give above and uh, in ways that would be unhelpful for you financially, hoping that God may sort of give you some sort of rabbit's foot blessing. Friends, that is broken wicked preaching of prosperity gospel preachers that just bilk poor people from their money. Don't buy into that sort of rabbit's foot mentality. But conversely, so don't fall into the ditch of legalism, but don't fall into the ditch of, of, of kind of ease and comfort. For some people, giving 10% of their income, would, would, they wouldn't miss it at all. And so do you see we have to trust the Holy Spirit that now lives in the people of God In the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God was poured out into the people of God, and now we are a royal priesthood, and as we expose ourselves to the right teaching of God's Word, the Spirit of God leads us, and we, as we submit our lives to the authority and lordship of God, and we obey the Holy Spirit, for some of us in particular times of our life, that may mean less, and for some of us that may have much. It may mean much more than 10%. The point is, is that as we seek the Lord and open up our lives to the accountability of Christians around us, we should give sacrificially. What does that look like for your life? Secondly, we should give cheerfully. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6, Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I mean, there's so many reasons why we can be grumpy in our giving. We might look at people around us and we might be resentful that they have more. We're ultimately complaining against God there. We might even look at the institutions that are using our money, maybe even the local church, and we may be frustrated with the ministry of the local church. And, and it might cause us to give reluctantly. And I understand there, there are certainly reasons at times to question the, the, the wisdom of the leadership of a local church. And you're always welcome to ans- ask any questions of this leadership of this local church. But, but do you see... What Paul is saying is here is we 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 need to trust God ultimately. No, no, no human institution, no church, no group of people is ever. We're never going to be perfect stewards of anything, and God is wanting to unclench our hands from our lordship over our stuff and its lordship over us and then to clench those hands to himself so that we would give sacrificially and that we would give with a kind of cheerful heart and this cheerful heart springs from a trust in God who will provide for our needs as we put him on display and obey him. Do you see that? So we should give cheerfully. Thirdly, I think that Christians should prioritize giving to their or our local church. Now there is no direct verse that says this explicitly. And I'm not saying, of course, that we should not give to other gospel ministries. Of course we should. But I do think if we are wise and gospel-centered readers of our New Testament, we will see that God's priority for gospel ministry is the local church. We see in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus to Peter upon his confession of faith in Christ. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Ephesians 3, verse 10 says something amazing. It says that God desires to make his manifold wisdom known through the church. Think about that. This, this group of people, us, I mean, all of the imperfections of Crosspoint, all of the things that we could be doing better. All of our limitations. God has deemed that little, dusty, imperfect congregations like Crosspoint are His primary vehicle for putting on display the glory of Christ. Not big, awesome, wow institutions But little congregations like us, people who have nothing in common other than Christ, who have to live together in a way where they hold up the glory of the good news of Jesus and where they learn to live life together to be a witness of the gospel that they say they believe. God, through the ages, uses the slow, often imperceptible, often difficult, rugged life of the local church to be his primary means of advancing his gospel. And we have to admit that as Americans, we are so into bang and bigness and awesomeness and big events, and I'm not against those things. Let's do those things. But friends, do not forsake and do not miss the regular rugged, organic, dusty, imperfect, frustrating, slow work of the local church, which is the body of Christ, which is where God delights to do his primary work of advancing his kingdom. Friends, that's why we love other local churches. That's why we don't criticize other local churches. Being a local church is hard. It's, no, no, you needed to amen that one. It's hard. Come on. We get on each other's nerves. We're lackadaisical. To, somebody said, we're lackadaisical towards one another, are we not? We are. It's hard. But that's how God loves his people, as we prefer the glory of God and one another more than our own comfort. God does beautiful, eternal things through the lives of local churches. And so I think it follows that Christians should prioritize giving to their local church. Just a few little, just a couple things in line. Members of Crosspoint, do you know about the ministry? Do you know about the budget of your local church? If you're a member of Crosspoint, I think you should. We make it available to you. We have member meetings every other month on Sunday nights where we brief you on the budget of this church where we show you where we're spending our money, I think you should be aware of that. I think you should come to those meetings. I think you should. I think if you're a member of Point, you should come to that. You should not sit that out. I think you should be familiar with our budget. I think you should pray for line items in our budget. I think you should know who your staff are and what they do. You support me and my family and the other full-time staff members of this church by your faithful giving, and I. <laughs> I'm so thankful for that. I, I meet pastor friends that are in smaller churches and they, they just don't have what we have. And you've been so good. I mean, we've been a church for 14 years and. I think we've probably preached on giving probably less than four or five times and you're just faithful and God's good and we just preach the gospel and just he provides and we just do our best and I, I think of my teaching and how many inadequacies there are and how many some things, things that I don't emphasize that I should and how I, oh, I, I, I don't teach the full counsel of God like I should in this area and that area and yet despite my limitations God still has blessed this church and I'm profoundly, profoundly thankful for that. It's, God is so good to us. Thank you for that. But know your pastors and know know that your giving helps to release us to full-time ministry, which doesn't exalt us above anybody. It should lower us because we want to serve you. We want to wash your feet with the good news of the Gospels. The good news of the gospel. Know your ministries in this church. Know the things that we do. Know the things that we're spending money on. Know your missionaries. Come on, your faithful giving is a reason why Logan and Molly Copley can be sent across the world. And you don't go across the world without a lot of money. And this church and your faithfulness has been the fuel behind that. Know your missionaries. Go When you leave these doors, go out to our new missions board that we're building, our missions wall, and see the pictures of missionary families that we support at Crosspoint. There are more coming. There are more that are going to be on that wall. And pray for them and know that your faithful giving is what sends them. And then take the time to pray and ask the Lord what you should give. Sacrificially and cheerfully, to your local church. And finally, what does God expect us regarding giving? He expects us to give as a reflection of the gospel itself. Second Corinthians eight, verse eight and nine. He says, "For this is not a. Com- not, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine." Listen to verse nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich it doesn't mean that jesus had a bunch of stuff he he, he has everything you know it's, it's talking about just the abundance of his he owns everything come on that's the understatement of the world paul Though he was rich, he's the creator. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God. For by him and through him, all things were made. Everything consists in him. I mean, of, of course Jesus is rich. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. And you see, Paul's not talking about how Jesus traded in his trust fund to fund his ministry so that we might be financially blessed. You see, that's clearly not the application. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that Jesus had everything, and he became a man. He made himself poor. He poured himself out. So that by his poverty, we might become spiritually rich. We might be reconciled to God. We might live with him forever. We might be saved from our sin. And we might be redeemed and restored and justified and adopted and sanctified and glorified and with him forever and ever and ever. And so... Because that is what life is all about. This stuff that he gives me. This stuff. I just—I want to be a picture of that. I want to be a display of that. And I don't want to hoard it. I want to give it away sacrificially and cheerfully. I don't want it to be the Lord of my life. I want the Lord to be the Lord of my life. And I want the way that I deal with the stuff that he's given me to be a picture of that. So that my little life and our little church will be a land of delight. A land of delight. And that God will bless us so that all the nations, all the peoples, all of Columbus, all those that he caused us to be part of this church, to come through these doors, will be blessed and see the beauty of the gospel of the one who, though he was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. That's why we give. Crosspoint, thank you. Thank you for being such a generous church. Thank you that as I prepared for this, there was no angst in my heart. There was just a joy to preach this principle of God's Word to God's people to make us more like Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, there are so many lives in this room today. I cannot clearly know or understand how this text and this message may be hitting them each do what human words cannot do, by your spirit apply it. For those that are loaded down with guilt because they have so little and they wish they, they could give more, Lord, comfort that, that heart. Let them know that they are, they are released from the captivity of the law and that they serve a new master, Jesus. And that we're free, we're free to rest in Christ and give ourselves, our lives, our possessions, our time, our talents, our treasures, all that we have to you, that you are pleased in your people. Encourage that one that is, 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 is feeling so condemned. Lord, for the one that has not thought carefully about their possessions, for, for those that may have maybe allowed their possessions to be their, their false God, wrench their hands from those things, Lord. Rebuke us, remind us Lift up our eyes. Unclench our hands from, from those idols and, and fasten those hands to, to yourself. And may we give sacrificially, cheerfully. Lord, thank you for providing for the needs of this local church. Thank you that we can employ staff to give their time, full time, to washing the feet of the saints. Thank you that we can send missionaries like the Complies to Serbia, Thank you that we can come alongside others that are serving all around this world. Thank you that we can send 80 or 90 members from this church last summer and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to a church plant. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, make our generosity, make make our right perspective on these things, use it in the future for more gospel churches to be planted and revitalized in our city, for more missionaries to be sent out, for more gospel presentations, for more people to come to faith, for more Christians to be built up and mature in the faith. Lord, do all of this, Lord, for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, that we might be a land of delight. For your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name, amen.